Hello and welcome to Epic Healing Transformations. The purpose of this podcast is to create a safe place to heal, transformation, and evolve. Your host, Michelle Manning, is the creator of the Quantum Soul Clearing Process. Each week, we'll be bringing you new and innovative ways to heal and transform every area of your life, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, and financially, so you are free to bring your gifts and talents into the world to become the best version of who you are designed to be and help revolutionize the world. This show will inspire you, lift you, connect you, and give you access to the most cutting-edge healing resources available anywhere on the planet. This is the Epic Healing Transformations Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Epic Healing Transformations. I am Michelle Manning, your host and curator. And today we have Stephen Sashin with us. I'm so excited. He is a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job. He's a former professional stand-up comic and award-winning screenwriter. He's also a competitive sprinter. He's one of the fastest men over 55 in the country, maybe even the fastest 55-plus Jew in the world, he says. <laughs> he and his <laughs> wife, Lena Phoenix, co-founded the footwear company Zero Shoes, creating a movement movement, which has helped hundreds of thousands of people live life feet first with happy, healthy, strong feet in addictively comfortable footwear. Stephen and Lena also appeared on Shark Tank, where they turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin O'Leary. And I am absolutely delighted to have you here today. Thanks for being here, Stephen. Well, thank you. You emphasized 400000 Like, that's a lot of money. I know. I did, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you know, for some people, that would be absolutely life-changing. <laughs> it, it is a lot of money. And it was funny, after the show, we did have people emailing and calling us, telling us what a bunch of idiots we were. So uh, that was very entertaining. And it took a while till I realized, oh yeah, they just watched us walk away from almost half a million dollars. That's right? a big deal. <laughs> We kind of forgot because we don't think of it in terms of you know dollars and cents. It was just, did it make sense for our business or not? And so right. I get it. Let's talk a little bit about the shoes because this is, this is a subject that's been near and dear to my heart from the time I was tiny because I couldn't stand anything on my feet. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Most kids are like that. I watched a woman in a store trying to put shoes on clearly, you know, a child for the first time. And it was like the kid was going to be flayed. I mean, it was yeah. incredible. And that's what a lot of us are like. And then at a certain point, you know, mom says, put on your shoes. You just go, all right, whatever. So you are my people, you shoe haters. And <laughs> people who want to find something comfortable. I was thinking about this earlier this morning, you know, people spend so much money trying to make their feet comfortable. And mostly what they're trying to do is build a house on a shaky foundation. And the shaky foundation is the shoes that they're starting in. But no one thinks of that because the crappy designs that we've been dealing with for all of our lives and the lives of our parents, typically, it's now been long enough that we assume that, well, that's just the way shoes are. How do I make do with this? And it's just the wrong question. So what is the right question? Because I remember thinking as I was being forced to put on shoes all those years, I may not live through this. Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, seriously, yeah, yeah. seriously. No, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was literally like feeling like I was being suffocated. And, yeah. you know, I would get home from school and those shoes would come off first thing. And I didn't, I don't care if it was raining. I don't care if it was snowing. I don't care what it was. I was in bare feet. And you know, my favorite thing was to run through the snow in socks. So <laughs> I wish you'd been around then. <laughs> I have been that. One day I'm walking into the office and I'm in bare feet, my short pants. I've got a zero shoes t-shirt on. My hair was especially large that day. And I catch my reflection in the window and I just stop and I went, oh, I'm that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. 
did not know I was that guy. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, in fact, I was in Costco recently in a pair of our shoes and two people stopped me who worked at Costco and said, what are you doing wearing shoes? So uh, I'm, I'm the guy who does barefoot in Costco and barefoot in the supermarket. In fact, if you've never been barefoot on a hot summer day in the produce section of a supermarket where the floor is nice and cold, when the mister goes off, it's like, you know, the adult version of running through a sprinkler. I highly recommend it. It's fabulous, isn't it? <laughs> and well, my line is, and if people look at you like you're crazy, that's a good sign because that's what normal people do when they're looking at someone having fun. And, <laughs> and, and even better, if a kid points at you and says, mommy, what's that person doing? Then you know you're on the right track. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what made you decide to start this movement movement? Oh boy. Well, it didn't start out that way. It started out just my own personal experience of, I got back into sprinting when I was 45. So 11 years ago, as of right now, 11 and a half as of right now. And I was getting injured all the time. And a friend of mine, who's a world champion cross country runner said, why don't you take off your shoes and run barefoot and see what you learn? And to make a semi-long story, semi-short, I learned why I was getting injured because running wrong in bare feet hurt and running in any way in regular shoes was leading to those injuries. And I learned how to get rid of those injuries because doing it wrong hurt and doing it right felt good. And that's when my injuries went away. I got faster. I became a master's all-American sprinter. And I wanted that natural movement feeling all the time. So I made a pair of sandals just with a thin bit of rubber and some string from Home Depot and laced them up and put them on my feet so I could be as close to barefoot as I could while still getting into restaurants. And that goofy little hobby of, you know, making shoe sandals for people because more and more people asked for them. One day a guy said, hey, if you treated this goofy hobby like a business and built a website, I would put you in a book that I've got a contract to write. So I rushed home and pitched this idea to my wife who said that my brilliant idea was in fact horrible and wouldn't make any money. And I'm a good husband. So I agreed. And then after she went to bed, I built a website. So <laughs> <laughs> Just like a man. I tell you, you guys are awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that point. And it just took off. I mean, there were a lot of people like you who just hated shoes or people who just never found comfortable shoes. And then what started out as just selling a do-it-yourself sandal kit has turned into now this whole footwear line of casual and performance shoes and sandals. And so what evolved really is just my thinking and my realization that the footwear industry the way I like to say it is it's a shame that shoes don't kill people because if they did, we would have a case on our hands like the RJ Reynolds tobacco situation where finally people see the truth because footwear companies know that the design of their shoes is not only not helping people, but often hurting people and they can't do anything about it because it would be admitting that what they've been saying for 50 years is a lie. So the more you understand natural movement, the more you want to you know, scream from the rafters in part because it's a personal thing. I don't like when people make money by lying to other people. Just one of my peccadillos, uh-huh. if you will. Uh, um, peeves is actually what I wanted to say. A peccadillo is a whole other thing. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. And it's really simple. Think of it this way. Name any other part of your body where if a doctor said to you, we're going to have to immobilize that for the rest of your life, you would go, yeah, that makes sense. So, But that's what happens when you go to a doctor and you have back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, and they say, let's put you in an orthotic that stabilizes your foot and doesn't let it move. Or again, just a regular shoe does the same thing. It squeezes your toes together. It elevates your heel, which doesn't do good things for your posture. You can't bend and flex your foot naturally. You can't feel the ground. That's what your foot's designed to do, to bend, to move, to flex, to feel. And if you don't let it do that, that function tries to move to joints 
further up, your ankle, your hip, your knee, your back, which aren't made for that, which causes pain. And eventually, if you don't use it, you lose it. And what that means when it comes to your feet is when you're an elderly person, you start shuffling around. And what that means for many people, including my, both my dad and my mom, both my dad and my mom trip fell down and broke their hip. My mom is alive a year and a half later. My dad died two weeks after that happened. Oh, so it's really just something that my wife and I feel incredibly strongly about that we want to make natural movement the obvious choice the way that natural food is. We want to get big companies to stop lying. And every time they come out with some magic new technology that, by the way, they never apologize for the crap technology they came out with, you know, the two years before. <laughs> in this industry. I laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the appropriate response. I mean, it is kind of funny in a sad sort of way, but it also should make people live it. It should make people you know, want to burn things in the street because when you get lied to often enough, it eventually becomes, quote, the truth. Right. And then we pass it on to our children and our children's children. And then the, those big companies don't even need to sell a benefit anymore because you're doing it for them. You tell people you need arch support, you need motion control, you need padding, you need all these things for which there is zero evidence. Conversely, tons of evidence about how natural movement is good for you that you'll never hear because it's not coming from billion dollar companies. So what are some of those benefits? Because I'm thinking back to when I was first diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and what I first noticed was how bad my feet hurt. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, I mean, I'm, I'm just having this aha moment. <laughs> I had just bought a pair of new tennis shoes <laughs> yeah. that were much more stiff and my feet have not been the same since. And yeah. I have just thought it's because of the rheumatoid arthritis yeah, yeah, diagnosis, but I yeah. now I'm beginning to wonder. Yeah, get, get out of those. So the benefits, I'll start with a simple thing. Strength solves a lot of problems. Right. And if you put your foot in a cast or your arm in a cast or any part of your body in a cast and don't move it, it gets weaker. Right. And if you use it, it gets stronger. That's the only way it can get stronger is by using it. And so that's the fundamental simplest idea. And most footwear is like putting your foot in a cast or think about shoes where the, where they're, they're pointy toed and that's not the shape of your foot. Squeezing no. your toes together means you can't use your big toe, which is what you need to do to engage your arch. If you can't engage your arch, it gets weaker. Even if you're not using arch support, it gets progressively weaker because you just can't use it. There's uh, some research that's come from Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard and uh, Sarah Ridge at BYU, Isabel Sacco in Brazil, and a number of others that show a couple of things. One is just being able to use your feet in a pair of shoes that are truly minimalist, like ours, and like a company called Vivo Barefoot, and like some of those five-finger shoes, but not all of them, and I'm not necessarily recommending them just because, you know, who wants to look like a gorilla? <laughs> But, and they never fit me. If they had fit me, I would have never started this company, but that's a whole other story. But something truly minimalist, and the distinction is that many shoe companies sell things they call minimalist that are actually worse for you than regular shoes. But anyway, walking in some, just walking in something truly minimalist can build intrinsic foot muscle strength. And what that can do is Isabel Sacco in Brazil gave some super minimalist shoes to elderly women and looked, tracked knee osteoarthritis and saw improvements in eliminations of knee osteoarthritis. Wow. People have done the same thing with plantar fasciitis, with knee pain, with hip pain. Mostly what the researchers try to do is measure things that are really, really simple to look at and not extrapolate too much. So they just think, look at things like foot strength. I mean, the converse, I can't remember if it was Sarah Ridge or Isabel, uh, sorry, or Irene Davis, who measured foot strength in people who put orthotics in their shoes or just wore stiffer shoes. And what a shock by not using them. They got weaker over time. So Wow. 
that's some of what we've seen. The other thing is you have to draw some lines and connect some dots. And they've done a number of, of animal studies showing that if you just basically put force on a joint in an animal's body, it develops arthritis. Right. And in humans, the easiest way to put force through your joints is ironically wearing shoes with a bunch of padding. Because the more padding you have, the more your brain tells your body to hit the ground harder because it needs the feedback of what's going on with your feet. And when you have a bunch of padding under your heel, the only way your heel can land is with it in front of your body. And when it's in front of your body, your leg is more straight. So the force goes right up through your ankle, your knee, and into your hip and your back. When you're in something where you don't have that padding, you actually use the muscles and ligaments and tendons in your body as the natural springs and shock absorbers they're meant to be. And that force goes away. So that brings up a question then. If you have current knee or foot or back or leg pain, do you think that going to a more natural, I mean, even barefoot or or using a shoe like yours, does that help cure it? I don't want to use the C word because, you know, that tends to get us in a lot of trouble. But can it begin to reverse those conditions? And again, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on the TV or podcast. I know. So I I, I can't say that either. But this is where Irene Davis and I have kind of comical arguments. She says what you need to do first is foot strengthening exercises. And you can find those online. It's pretty simple. Uh, Just to build up enough strength to then start working your way slowly into being barefoot and spending more and more time that way. I say just start with a very small amount of being barefoot and build up your strength that way or, you know, barefoot or in our shoes if barefoot is not appropriate. So it's kind of six one. It's kind of like you don't want to go to the gym and just do an hour's worth of bicep curls. You want to do a set of 10 and then come back when you're not sore and then do an 11 and then, you know, wait till you're not sore again. So either way, you're slowly building up strength. If you think of it, if you've been in a cast for years and years and years, it's going to take you a little bit of time to build up that strength. But using that analogy, imagine that you actually break your arm, you put your arm in a cast. When it comes out, you have two choices. You can keep it immobilized for the rest of your life, or you can do some strengthening exercises. And in a relatively short period of time, you're back to normal. Same thing with your feet. It's going to take a little bit of time, but once you do, you have what can be strong, healthy feet for life. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Again, just thinking about my own feet things that are going on, and I'm like, I have so got to get a pair of these shoes. So so before we started this podcast, I'm going to switch directions here slightly because one of the things that we talk about here on Epic Healing Transformations is people's stories of overcoming something difficult. And I, I said to you, I'd, I'd love to hear your dark night of the soul. And there was this pause. And, and you said, I said, I, I was thinking about this for some unknown reason over the re- recent days. And I don't think I've had one. Or if I have, I've so reframed whatever the experience was, that I can't relate to that in a certain way. I mean, I understand it, and I get it. Right. But I also, the most traumatic things that ever happened to me when I really looked at them carefully, the trauma falls apart. And I'll give you a weird example that I don't talk about very often because it doesn't occur to me. Um, so, <laughs> I, I love when people tell me their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not much of a secret, but it's just something that I don't really talk about very much. Right. So back in 1989, I happened to be in China during the Tiananmen Square massacre. Mm. And more than being in China, I got shot at and captured in a shooting spree and taken back to the square with six guys pointing machine guns at my head, trying to decide who was going to pull the trigger. And that's what most people do is react the way you just did. And that's kind of what I did too. Actually, here's where it gets interesting. There are two components. The first is that for a year, well, obviously I didn't get shot. What happened was eventually after it was my best friend and I, and eventually 
they realized that we were neither Chinese nor reporters nor nor spies and let us go. And we went running back home. Our bicycles had bullet holes in the tires. I was all scraped up from when I hit the pavement trying to avoid bullets coming from behind me, which by the way, just sounds like popcorn. It's a very weird experience where part of my brain is going, God, that doesn't sound like much. And the other part of my brain is going, shut up. (laughs) Run. (laughs) So anyway, it was very traumatic experience for me for years, especially on the anniversary of the event, or if I saw things that reminded me of it, or uh, once I was on a subway and someone bumped into me with a tennis racket, the tennis racket hit me in the side the way a gun butt had hit me in the side when they captured me, and uh-huh. I would have these experiences from that. But some number of years later, not very many actually, I really looked at the situation very, very slowly, like one frame at a time. And the reality is that there was a bit of fear at first, and then I kept having the thought, if I'm going to die, I want to know that I'm dying. I, want to, I just want to have some awareness right before it happens. There's a Buddhist idea that the last thought you have determines your next rebirth. And I remember thinking, boy, I hope I get a good one. And everything got really crystal clear. It was actually the calmest I have ever been in my entire life. It was the most lucid I have ever been in my entire life. It, was, it couldn't have been less than traumatic other than that first little bit, which wasn't really that traumatic. It was just like, oh, geez, you know, running away from bullets, which frankly I've had running away from many other things. So it was not a big deal. And then crystal clarity. And then after we got let go, there was this massive endorphin wave. And I say wave because it literally felt like, you know, when you're standing in the ocean facing the beach and you feel the undertow mm-hmm. pulling out from your underneath your, your feet and then you get hit by a wave behind you. Yeah. That was what the endorphins felt like. And it just like overcame me. And I remember having the thought, wow, we almost died. And literally, it was after that thought arose that it became a traumatic experience. Up until then, blissful clarity, massive endorphin wave, and no trauma until, oh, we almost died. And once I realized that, the whole thing fell apart. Once I kind of did it frame by frame, and was able to look at the experience, this story was so different that I couldn't maintain it. And the story, oh, I almost died, is what caused the trauma, not the actual experience. Right. I've talked to many, many people, and I've walked them through something similar in their own lives, where if you look at whatever that thing was, frame by frame, it's often not the way we then tell the story later, and it's often the story later, that narrative, that created the real problem that during the event itself, it was much, much simpler. And not saying that it was blissful or wonderful, but it wasn't the way we experience it well after the fact when someone tells, when we tell the story or when someone tells you how to reframe it. Mm. That's another one. I I met someone, and this is going to sound crazy, I know, to some people, and my apologies in advance. I'm not trying to minimize what I'm about to say, and, and I'm not saying it's true for other people, but I met a woman who woke up drunk after she had passed out at a party. And for weeks was just like, oh man, I drank too much at a party. And then someone told her that she was raped. And that's when she became a rape victim. She had no memory of it even happening. So it raises a really interesting question. I mean, it's a real kind of tree falls in the forest question. It's like, until she was told that this thing happened, something for which she still had no evidence other than someone telling her, she had no traumatic experience. So what actually happened? And again, I'm not saying she was or she wasn't. I'm just saying, look at what her experience was. Completely nonplussed, no change in her life, 
until someone told her about something that she had no memory of and she went with it. And I don't even know if she knows if it actually happened or not. You know, I think this is such a profound conversation in how our stories can either support us or really break us down. And the meaning that we give those stories based on so many different factors, you know, our own previous experiences of, you know, whether or not we've been traumatized, what we expect from something that should or should not be traumatizing. Right. And other people's interpretation. And are we picking up on their energy, their interpretation, and their meaning that's been given to that story? And what value do we get out of that story? Yes. Yes. That's another one that's interesting. I remember, this is going to sound like I'm minimizing everything I just said. (laughs) After my first cat died, (laughs) which I got to be the one who did the injection that put to sleep, yeah. which was fascinating. I remember people coming up to me and they heard that my cat died and they were really upset. And I knew that I had to hug them so they couldn't see that I wasn't. And it's not that it didn't upset me. It's just actually what happened after she died was that I would have, again, it's a frame by frame thing. The first thing that would happen is I would have this image in my mind that I was going to turn the corner and see her. Then I would remember that she was dead. And then I would think, oh, I'm never going to see this cat again. And oh, I'm never going to have an experience like the relationship I had with Rudy again. And then I would be upset. So there's like four stages until I went, was upset. But the first two were really pleasant. Remembering my cat or, you know, thinking that she was around the corner, remembering her, those were pleasant. And then the thought of, oh, I'm never going to have something like that. And then I got upset. And that lasted for about two days until the end, the, the last two stages didn't happen. And all I would get was, oh, I'm thinking about my cat. Oh, Rudy. And I'm having that now, actually. My wife and I just put another cat of ours to sleep just a few months ago. And there, and there are so many little memory jogs of her in our house that it's now been like four months. And I drive home thinking, okay, I'm coming to give you food. Chill out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and I just find those thoughts just so bittersweetly wonderful mm-hmm. and not at all unpleasant. But if I went one step further about how horrible it is that she died or that I'm never going to have that again, then that part of the story becomes unpleasant. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent from just, yeah, you're, I think you nailed it. It's the story, the meanings, the value we get, the things that other people think about them. Those are typically much more traumatic than the actual thing that we said was the problem. Well, and again, I'm, I'm just sitting here having this OMG moment (laughs) because I had to put both of my kitties down two years ago and I'm reflecting on the story or the meaning because I mean, they were, they were my surrogate children. They, oh, yeah, same with us. We don't have kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I've just, you know, I've just had to kill my child. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, that's a meaning that isn't true. You know, I, they were, they were both incredibly ill and yeah. you know, my, my big guy that was 25 pounds had, you know, had started having seizures and he'd obviously had some event during the night. And when I took him in, they were just like, you know, we've got to do something about this. Yeah. But I think it was more about my own 
loss and grieving and and the story of that misinformation in my brain of I just killed my child, which isn't the truth by any far stretch, which creates the suffering. So I love this reframe and that, that ability to go, wow, what's the story and what's the meaning that I'm giving the story, which also determines how profound our experiences that could be and that often are the dark night of the soul. What's the real yeah, yeah, yeah. meaning that we've given it that may or may not actually be true that's creating or enhancing our own suffering over that experience that oh. creates that additional cascade? And you know, to go even further, I remember being in this psychology class several years ago when I went back to, to university, and we did this exercise, and it was an association exercise, and it started out with this word, honey. And then she would say the word again, and then we would write down the next word that came to mind. It was fascinating to me that of the, you know, 30 or 40 people in the room, not one person had the same cascade (laughs) of information and how the brain associates certain words based on that one word that comes next. Right. And then she said, okay, now we're going to do this exercise again. And I want you to choose a different word than you did, you know, the first time I say this word. So I'm looking at these two, and, and this is even in my book, you know, where I share how associations actually work in the brain and in the body. And the second word took me down this whole different loop of complete negativity versus the other one that ended up being about love and and (laughs) And it was like, oh my gosh. So this really underlines and underscores how when we associate something in our brain, the first thing that we tell ourselves and how it, and what it creates and how it creates that outcome. And I love what you said. The the part that I love about what you said, uh, or I'm going to highlight it a little bit is that all the chunks that are sort of out of your control that just started with the first thing. And so it's not like we can stop it in real time, but we can look back and and I I keep using the metaphor, just looking at the film frame by frame. And if you're really attentive, you might even notice that the first thing you came up with wasn't yours either, just showed up out of nowhere and you went with it. Right. And where did that come from? Is the other piece, you know? Is that from the collective? Is it from the person we were with? Is it from, you know, something generational? What is that? You want to hear an embarrassing story about that? I would love that. I knew you would. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a psychological concept called priming. And the way priming works is that there's something that, you know, you don't really even notice, but it kind of sets you off in the way that you're describing down this path of associations. And one of my favorite examples of priming is an experiment that they did where they brought in college students to do a word memorization test. And they really didn't care about the word memorization part. What they were really measuring was how quickly the students walked into the test and how quickly they walked when they left the test. And the difference is that one students just had random, a group of students had random words, and the other group of students had words that related to aging or being old. And the students who saw those words walked out slower than they walked in. The regular, the students who saw the regular random words walked out at the same pace they walked in. So just thinking about those words changed their behavior in ways that they had no idea. So here's the embarrassing one. I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is, um, let's just say Boulder is very diverse. There's all different kinds of white people. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You said it correctly. (laughs) When I moved here from New York City, my joke was I moved to Colorado because I wanted to meet the black guy. And the... um, (laughs) 
and, and so one day, I'm, I'm again, this is a, an embarrassing story. Uh, one day, I'm walking down the street towards downtown Boulder, and I'm crossing a street, and crossing the street in the other direction, coming towards me, is a black woman. And I just kind of noticed that, you know, that was that. And then a half a block later, there's a friend of mine, and the way that I say hello to my friend of mine or catch my friend's attention is I went, yo, yo, what's up? So... It could not be more humiliating that I that the priming of seeing a rare sight in Boulder of black woman led me to do that stereotypical black sounding thing. And the thing, of course, that was so funny is I was aware that that's what had just happened. And I immediately like fell on the ground laughing because what are you going to do? So, so much of those these things that we do, these associations that lead to our stories, that lead to our suffering are coming from things that we that are out of our awareness completely, just yeah. not even personal at all. And we may remember what that triggering thing was that had nothing to do with us, maybe not. But it's incredible how much we're buffeted by the winds of you know, random perception. It is. It absolutely is. And I love Boulder. I, I lived in Colorado, just east of there for quite some time. But it, Boulder also reminded me a lot of, of living in Park City where I raised my kids. And it was definitely not very culturally diverse unless you were, you know, just basically looking at white people. So, right, right. <laughs> but, There's but, more actual Africans than African-Americans. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I want to back up, but back to the dark night of soul thing. I realize that so many of the things that I used to think of as painful or traumatic, yes. I just can't find those associations anymore. And I and you reminded me of one other version of this. I remember walking around one day. I don't even know why. Oh, I know. I was just condom. <laughs> this is going to sound crazy. I was just contemplating the phenomenon of flowingness versus boundaries. I don't know why I was doing that. It's a crazy thing. And I looked up at a tree and I saw the leaves. And I was just thinking about how the leaves, there's all this flowingness that comes into the leaves, but there's these boundaries that make up the edges of the leaves. And if it weren't for the boundaries, the flowing thing wouldn't work and there wouldn't be leaves and there wouldn't be trees. And this whole thing wouldn't happen. And my next thought was, holy crap, if my father behaved in the way that I was complaining that he should have or demanding that he should have or bitching that he wasn't, if he were the way that I had fantasized, he wouldn't have been putting up those edges, those boundaries that my flowingness would have been stopped by. And I would have been in completely unable to deal with human beings and vice versa. So wow. the exact way that he was, was really exactly what I needed to become a functioning human being to the extent that I am. And at that moment, I, my next thought was, well, there goes all my therapy. Done. 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 Isn't that fascinating? And, and it's funny that you said that too, because I, as you were saying that, it was like, that is exactly my experience with my own parents. And, you know, for years railed against, you know, the injustice and blah, 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 blah. And then, <laughs> and then having that awareness of, yes, but that was exactly what you chose and exactly what you needed to become the human being that you are. And even the experiences, you know, in childhood of being bullied. And again, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about that, you can't divorce yourself of any experience that you've had, good, bad, or indifferent, because one minute change in that changes who you are. Right. And understanding that that life path is exactly what was designed by you, by the creator, by divine intelligence, whatever that is, to create the human being that you are today is such a profound 
awareness. And, and people have said, you know, for, for many years, it was like, oh, I wish I could do something different. But as I've gotten older, it's like, no, I would, I don't think I would change a thing because it wouldn't have gotten me to where I am today. Correct. And that doesn't mean that you can't look at those things and see where they kind of pushed you and shoved you and coerced you and encouraged you. And when you kind of find the, if you find the story that came out of some of those, the meaning that came out of some of those, now is when you can just go, oh, wait, I don't even believe that. Right. There's a new possibility. So I remember at some point having the idea that if my father and I were, were strangely competitive, I don't mean, not that it manifested in any peculiar way, nor was it really strange between fathers and sons, but let's just say we were competitive. Let's cut out the strangely part. <laughs> so my, my dad and I were competitive. And uh, I remember having the thought that in some way I would be acquiescing if I ended up becoming more successful than him. Like it would be, it would be something where I, you know, was giving in and becoming what he wanted me to be instead of what I wanted to be. And it was a very kind of unaware thought. And then I just remember thinking, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever unconsciously believed. <laughs> so, um, Cause actually he would be thrilled. He would ask me for money and, you know, it would be other kinds of hassles, but whatever. I mean, he would, act, the, the first thing he would have would, would be thrilled and then competitive, like, damn him. And that would have been fine. So that one ended. Or, or the one that's like creating a whole new reality, this one I find utterly hysterical. When my wife and I got together as a couple, she moved in with me and said, after a couple of weeks, she said, I think it would be better that if instead of me getting a job, you just let me manage all the things that you were doing and you paid me for doing that. So two weeks later, when I started breathing again. I love her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So um, it literally took me two weeks of trying to figure out why I was so upset by that idea. And at the two-week mark, I realized that I had this notion in the back of my brain that I had never articulated. It was never something that I could have expressed up until that moment, that the person that I was going to be with, that we would have kind of similar jobs or similar some things and earn about the same amount of money and kind of share and split things. And it would all be really kind of copacetic because I realized that I had the idea that my parents had a different kind of relationship, similar to the one that Lena had just proposed. And I didn't think that it worked for them. And then I realized that it seemed to have worked for them fine. They had been together for 60 years. So yeah. no one ever complained, no one ever left. And that was just one of a million different financial relationships that a couple could have. And when I realized that the idea that I had was just an arbitrary just arbitrary choice that I hadn't even consciously made. I decided to look at Lena's proposal again, and I walked into the bedroom and said, um, I just been rethinking what you suggested. And A, you were right, and B, you were, off, you were undervaluing yourself by about 50%. So wow. here's the joke. We've been running this business together for the last nine years. We now have that life that I said that I wanted of basically doing the same thing and getting the same amount of money and sharing all that. And, you know, it, and, and I, didn't, I didn't realize that on day one. I think I only realized that like two years ago, that Damn. somehow it had turned into exactly what I had said that I had wanted after I had completely given up and couldn't care less about how it turned out. That is hilarious. Yeah, that's uh. hilarious. <laughs> In fact, actually, wait, it's even better because the other day I said, uh, you know, you should be getting paid more than I am. Ooh, <laughs> I think you're right. I want, no, no, I'm totally serious. Do it. Love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. You, you guys have such a great relationship. It's, it's such an inspiration for me. <laughs> oh, my, my mom has Alzheimer's and doesn't know who I am, but still says things like, Lena is the best thing that ever happened to Stephen. And she's totally right. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. I got to talk about the Alzheimer's thing because this is just so relevant for what we're saying. Yes. I'm visiting my mom. Uh, actually, I got to tell a fun story first. My sister and I walk in to see her a couple months ago and we're just kind of curious where her mind is. So we sat down in front of her and she just kind of looked at us. And my sister says, do you know who I am? And my mom says, um, I think I should. And I said, do you know who I am? And she goes, looks at me and she goes, are you Mark? I went, no. My sister says, do you have any children? My mom says, yes. My sister says, how many? My mom says, three or four, just two. And so we kept saying, you know, so do you know who I am? And after like five minutes of asking, do you know who I am? My mother leans into us kind of conspiratorially and says, do you know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> But um, anyway, I'm hanging out with my mom at a a music event. They had a a soprano singer who came and sang show tunes for an hour. And I was going through this wave of like questioning emotional things because on the one hand, I was saying, this is so wonderful. On the other hand, I'm going, this is so sad seeing these people in this particular state. But then I had to, I couldn't help but notice none of them were sad. And then I thought, oh, but if it happened to me, but then I had to remind myself, none of them know they have a problem. Right. So if it happened to me, I wouldn't know I had a problem either. So where's the sad part? And I couldn't find it. Again, going back to the meaning that we give. Right, right, right. Circumstances. Yeah, that was it. That was it. It was the only place it got sad was when I had some thought slash story that kicked in that was a sad a sad thought slash story but the event itself the situation itself couldn't have been more devoid of sadness even the idea of like you know i lost my mom so that's a sad story but i didn't lose my mom the mom that i remember was still in my mind as alive as ever the person in front of me was a different person right no deal Yeah. And I think this is a really important distinction to make, especially, I mean, my mom is also in, you know, she has dementia and, and my dad is starting in with it as well because he's had a couple of strokes. And so I think this story is such a powerful example of the meanings that we give things based on our own something, something, story, perspective, something, something, something. And maybe we don't, have to feel, you know, that grief. I don't know. I th- I think you've said something so profound today that is, I, I'm going to take this and really think about it. And I hope that our listeners do too, because this is such a huge piece of information. I have a prediction that some people are going to find this really offensive they and probably really will. annoying and uh, want to prove that in many, many ways that I have my head completely up my butt. <laughs> And that's cool. And, and I'm not saying that anyone should do what I'm about to say, but if that's your response, then what's happened is it's kicked up some thought slash story that you have about whatever situation you're in, where it seems more important to hold on to that than to investigate. I'm not saying you have to get rid of it. I'm not saying you shouldn't be sad. I'm not saying you shouldn't be upset at things that happened or forget that they happened or think that they're all wonderful and the best thing that could have happened. To you. I don't, it's none of my business. All I'm saying is if it's upsetting, could be really interesting to set the story story aside for a second, just to look at it like as clinically as you possibly can, no adjectives involved. Just like if you were watching a movie of it and it was a silent movie and you were from another planet, what would you be seeing and what do you discover? Because it's not like 
I don't sometimes feel sad about the loss of my mom, whatever that means, or my cat or previous relationships or, you know, not be upset about some memories that I have about things that happened with my dad. But if anything, if they come up, and I, I will confess that it's very rare, they just don't stick. They just don't have a thing. It's not denying reality. It's not, um, <laughs> sorry, wait. <laughs> when late, one of the ways that Lena and I got together before we were a couple, we, we were having, uh, she was really mad at me about something. And I said, why don't you just t- tell me, you know, Stephen, you are, and fill in the blank with all the horrible thoughts that you currently seem to have. <laughs> and and um, I don't remember all of them. In fact, I only remember one. She said, well, you think you're spiritually superior to me. And I said, oh my God, I totally think that. I'm not <laughs> saying it's true. It's just that because I've done all this meditation and all these things and blah, 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 you know, that's, that's why I would, I would come to think that. I never articulated that thought, but yeah, I, I would agree that I, I do think that. And for all I know, you're the Buddha. So I have no evidence for this. My apologies if that came out in some way that's really unpleasant, but you know, the FYI. And she's like going on and on and on with all these really unpleasant things. And at one point she says, um, why are you not getting upset? And I said, well, for one, you haven't said anything to me that isn't a thought that I've had. So why would I argue with you? Even when you're saying things like, you know, you're, you're arrogant. It's like, oh my God, you have no idea how arrogant I am in my own head. And I wish there was something I could do about it, but I haven't found a solution to make that stop. So you know, my apologies, but man, you were totally right. And the other thing I said, and besides, I just didn't know you thought about me this much. So. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me on your mind all the time. <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow, this is awesome. I've been thinking about you all the time. I thought it was just me. That's hilarious. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, we are not responsible for other people's opinions of us. And a lot of times what they're saying is true. So yeah. But we've judged ourselves. I mean, if it's upsetting us, then then we need to look at those definitions of why is it that, you know, if somebody thinks I'm arrogant or if somebody thinks I'm a racist or, you know, what is that that is triggering that response? And if it is true, why does it bother you? Why does it bother you that somebody thinks that? Right. What are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, it, it's my favorite. It's my all-time favorite thing. If somebody's upset, upset with me, just to say, just, you know, give it to me straight. Just tell me what you're thinking. And because I've literally never met anyone who has ever said anything that isn't either factually accurate, so I won't, can't, can't argue, or completely inaccurate, so why would I argue? Or something where w- the way I think it is so much worse than their experience of it. And it's always the way I typically meet some statement like that is, yeah, I think that too about myself sometimes. And sometimes I'll say, and it's something that I've really tried that I don't like about the way I work, uh, the way my mind works and my body seems to follow. And I've done things to try to resolve that. And they've been completely ineffectual. And if you have any suggestions, I am wide open because I can see how much this bothers you. And that's certainly not my intention. And usually the response is, you know, I'm just like that. (laughs) And it's all over. It's like another Lena story. Before we were even a couple, she was mad at me about something. And I said something that made her even more mad. And she said, (laughs) She said, did you think that would be helpful? I said, of course I did. I was just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what I love most about you. You're willing to say, yeah, of course I'm wrong. And... (laughs) Well, I actually followed that with, and it may be that on your deathbed, you go, oh, son of a bitch, you were totally right. (laughs) (laughs) I love this conversation. Oh my gosh, Stephen, we could go on and on and on. I just, I love talking to you. I just find you so fascinating and and just so informative about everything. Tell our audience how people can get a hold of you. Tell them how how they can find your shoes. Tell them them everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I, I got to tell you, it really is kind of funny that there really is a through line between what we've been talking about for God knows how long it's been and footwear. And, and again, I think the thread that led us here is what's true. Yes. You really just cut through all the propaganda, what's true. Well, and, and it's also about the movement of movement. And if yeah. your mind is flexible and your feet are flexible, what else do you want? <laughs> yeah. I, boy, I like that line. I'm stealing it. Okay. Uh, I'm really good at taglines. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really easy. You can find us at Zero Shoes. That's X-E-R-O Shoes, plural.com, or at Zero Shoes or slash Zero Shoes on your favorite social media channel, or Smoke Signals work, um, Carrier Pigeons work, um, Sending Boxes of Chocolate works, whatever, whatever works for you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Do you have any last words or? Oh my God, after what we just did? Are you I kidding? I know, right? <laughs> Jeez, that was a tough call. Oh, I've, I've got one that's kind of bubbling up and, or not a word, but a, a thought that's kind of bubbling up. You know, when we, t- when we think about everything we just talked about, I think there's a, th- one of the other through lines is that there's nothing that is fundamentally trying to make you miserable that's trying to hurt you whether it's your own mind or another person look even if someone is literally trying to hurt you and i've been in that situation often what they're really trying to do is stop some pain that they have and they just don't know how to do it some other way again i'm not excusing anybody not trying to diminish anybody's experience of that but i guess the 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 simplest thing is is you know what does it look like if we just take a moment and put the story aside get rid of the adjectives, be kind to our own thinking and start there and see where that leads. That doesn't mean you stay somewhere that you don't want to stay, that you hang out with someone you don't want to hang out with. It may be that you're able to leave in a way that is as kind to everybody as humanly possible. And boy, what a, what a, that would be an incredible world to live in. Yeah, it really would. Thank you so much. And thank you for being here. I just, I have so appreciated this conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Stephen. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This is not what I do on a daily basis when I'm putting shoes on people's feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to meet you out in Boulder. This will be fun. <laughs> what? What? All right. Take care. And everyone, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, definitely subscribe, rate, review, share it with your friends. And thank you for being here. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. If this episode has touched your heart, please rate and review it and then share it with all your loved ones. Reach out to Michelle and share your thoughts, feelings, and experiences at Michelle at EpicHealingTransformations.com.